You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Sarah. And hey, it's Grace. And today I'm going to tell you the story of Michael Rosenblum, which was requested by Instagram user Seldom Seen, who is from Pittsburgh. And thank you for this suggestion because I've honestly never heard of it. Um, It's also a bit different than the other cases we've done because you may have noticed that there is a question mark in the title. And to be fair, like a few of our missing persons cases could be classified this way, but you'll see what really calls for the existence of the question mark as I get further into it. Ooh, mystique. I know, right? 25-year-old Michael Rosenblum lived with his parents in Shadyside, which is a suburb of Pittsburgh, and he had a drug problem. And I mention this not to imply that whatever happened to him was his fault, but drugs were a huge part of his life at this time, and they had been for quite a while. Mainly the drug Percodin, which is a mix of codeine and aspirin. I had no idea. I had to look that up. Okay. I wonder why aspirin? Like, what is the benefit of adding aspirin to it? The only thing that I know aspirin to do is be a blood thinner. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like a painkiller, but blood thinner. So I have no idea, honestly. Interesting. So at this point, he was living with his parents and working as an insurance salesman at his dad's insurance company, but he just could not keep himself clean. Despite six days in numerous numerous rehab facilities and tons of support, his parents kept finding drugs in their home over and over again. Now, Michael's mother, Barbara, speaks on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, and it's like the OG season one from 1989. It's great. Robert Stack, all of it. Um, But she talks about flushing pills down the toilet. Now, right around this time, the concept of quote unquote tough love was a big thing. So Barbara was just desperate and willing to try anything. And she'd really never done anything like that before. But it was kind of this new wave of this is how you take care of problems. So she kicked him out of her home and told him not to come back until he was clean. Now, this was on February 13th of 1980. So Michael, who is pissed and probably high, called up his girlfriend, Lisa, who he had met at Western Psychiatric Institute and Clinic. And she came to pick him up and they drove away together in her car. And Barbara, his mother, had no idea that she would never see Michael again. And this is really heartbreaking to watch her talk about it on Unsolved Mysteries because she was she was just trying to do the right thing and help get her son off drugs. Like she's so like obviously sad about it, but just and I'm sure horrible. I'm sure she has gotten flack from every side of the argument as well. Um, I'm sure she blames herself and I'm sure we you know, we're two paragraphs in so i know there's more information to come but i'm sure that she blamed herself and many other people probably pointed fingers at her until it gets your fault because you did xyz but those same people could have you know two weeks prior been the ones telling her you know well you can't let him keep living under your roof if he's gonna do drugs like yeah it the same people that 
yelled at her for you know and i'm totally just making assumptions here but it's possible that the same people that yelled at her for quote unquote condoning it by allowing him to live in her house are probably the same ones that blamed her when she kicked him out yeah there's always gonna be those judgmental ones and i mean michael was 25 years old like he was an adult he wasn't 14 yeah exactly yeah he wasn't a teenager that she was like get out of my house he was a full-blown adult and he needed to get his stuff together and she you could just tell from watching both of his parents that they had tried for so long and they just didn't know what to do but they were so supportive so i really feel for her yeah so michael's family describes him as kind but free-spirited and I interpret this as being kind, but not always observant of others' feelings because he's like kind of just too busy doing his own thing. Maybe not very self-aware, but that's how I took it. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Kind, but free spirited. <laughs> like he's going to do his own thing, but he's going to be nice if you come across his path. Yeah. Yeah. So and I'm, I also take it to mean that he wouldn't want to hurt anyone intentionally. Right. Right. He liked fast cars and drugs and was a ladies man. And this is how his family described him. But he also had a short fused temper. He wanted to be the type of man that his father was and was even working for him as the insurance salesman at the time of his disappearance. But he just could not stay away from drugs. Um, Though Michael's attitude toward drugs were that they were something fun to do and he could handle it. And that seemed to be even after all the rehab and everything. Yeah. And um, Trish, who I have now mentioned like 50 times on this podcast. Hey, Trish, I I feel like I know you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We were talking even earlier today about the fact that sometimes people who are more likely to fall into addiction may also just be people that naturally have like a lack of dopamine. And Oh, that's a problem for me. That well, it makes a lot of sense though, it because does. if it's not treated and you're trying to find something else to fill this gap. So I can kind of see where he's saying, like, well, they're just fun to do. Like I'm not doing it because my body is craving it. I just enjoy it. But like there's that little bit of, well, you enjoy it because you crave it. Yeah, it's so scary because it's like, I can stop Mm -hmm. doing drugs anytime I want. Like, yeah, I don't think you can. Yeah. Sorry, that was a bit of a tangent, but. No, it makes sense. So he he thinks he can handle it. And so it doesn't really seem like he wanted to get off drugs at all. So no wonder the rehab never worked because you've got to want it at some level. Right. You have to admit that it's a problem. And if you don't see it as a problem, rehab's not going to accomplish anything. Yeah, exactly. So Michael Levy, one of Michael Rosenblum's best friends, told the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette in 1987 that he recalled Michael getting thrown out of bars on various occasions and how he had fought for the keys to Rosenblum's Datsun 240Z. Um, Just to note, it's a 1970 sports car, and it probably looks just the way you imagine it does. Um, Because Rosenblum was too drunk or high to drive home. Uh, Eventually, Maurice Rosenblum, Michael's father, had to confiscate the car because of all the traffic violations. Oh, my gosh. So that's what I mean about his parents, too. They were so, I feel like, 
just long suffering and really yeah supportive but like all uh, they had to deal with so much michael was actually arrested on january 21st 1980 for either a traffic violation or possession of drugs it's not clear but he had in the past been arrested for both um but he had probably been on something at the time either way not even two weeks after finishing a 28-day program at Gateway Rehab Center. And this was about three weeks before he disappeared. So Oof. fresh out I wonder of the rehab. I wonder if it was like a traffic violation and then they found drugs on him or, you know, discovered that he was high. Which is might be why there's some of that muddied water of was he arrested for a traffic violation or a possession of drugs? Yeah. Like maybe he just forgot to signal and then, you know, so he got pulled over for not doing that. But then, you know, as we've seen on cop shows all the time, one thing leads to another. Well, they say a traffic violation, but the way they described it. So he'd been arrested three times in all. Um, and they just said that the last time was this January 21st. So okay. traffic violation, they said at least one was like a DUI, which I don't really, I feel like, I guess technically it's a traffic violation, but right. But he was driving also, while inebriated. And I, I think we've had this conversation before and I think we looked it up and they're pretty much the same, but DUI and DWI is DUI specifically. It's just driving under the influence, right? Yeah. It's not. Mm -hmm. Okay. I thought so they were the same. Like it while intoxicated too. and under the influence, but yeah, I'm not sure. In Pennsylvania, the correct term is DUI, but DUI, DWI, and OWI are all essentially the same thing. I've never heard OWI. Operating. Oh, okay. Intoxicated. So like flying or a plane. Impaired. Forklift. <laughs> Any of those things. Yeah. Gotcha. Hot air balloon. Toy Jeep. Whatever. Oh, oh Lord. Um, so Maurice Rosenblum, the father, he directly blames Dr. Paul James of Beach Haven, New Jersey for Michael's addiction or at least like a huge part of it. So the Rosenblums had a summer home there in Beach Haven and Michael had reportedly made hundreds of phone calls to Dr. James while they were staying there for illicit prescriptions for things like Valium, Percodin, and Tussinex, uh, which is a narcotic cough syrup. And he made these calls between 1976 all the way up until uh, his disappearance. Interesting. Yeah. Not surprisingly, Paul James surrendered his medical license in 1981 after an investigation by the New Jersey Attorney General's office. Um, and I was reading up on this a bit. And he also prescribed for his own wife, morphine, Demerol, Percodin, and Valium. Like this Goodness woman. Gracious. And I'm, God, I'm really hoping that she at least asked him and that first he wasn't like drugging her. But like she must right. not have wanted to feel anything. I mean, those now, are serious. Is this I mean, obviously, he, you know, surrendered his license, so he was clearly in the wrong and admitted it. But were things as strict in the 70s and 80s with prescriptions? We didn't I mean, we didn't know as much about narcotics and addiction publicly as we do now, did we? 
Probably not. And it's kind of interesting that you bring that up because he was claiming. Now, this is a very extreme case. I mean, he was prescribing to other people, too, and like ridiculous amounts. But he was also claiming that he was trying to help them. Mm. But it didn't really seem like he was trying to wean them off or anything like Uh, that. He gave his wife freaking Demerol and morphine. So, yeah. I, I don't know if there's anything okay. to his claim that he was trying to help people because like in Michael's case, that was three or four years that he was prescribing for right. him. And yeah, no, I don't think they were as strict, but this was very extreme. The amount that he was prescribing. Okay, that's fair. So anyway, um, Barbara kicks Michael out on the 13th. Of February. So Michael and Lisa drive away in her car, which was a Pontiac Sunbird. They go to a local nightclub called the Encore, where Lisa applies for a waitressing job. And then they stay at Lisa's mother house, Lisa's mother's house in Whitehall. And at first I thought this was the Whitehall that's like an hour from me. And I was so confused. I mean, I was like, (laughs) the the string board type thing and I was trying to figure it out I'm like they drove all the way east like toward me and then I was so confused and then it turns out that Whitehall is more of like a it's like a suburb or neighborhood just like Shadyside is yeah and so weird I know someone who's a cop in the Pittsburgh area and right around that time they posted something from Whitehall And I was like, that's like a really weird coincidence. But at least I figured out that this is all happening (laughs) around Pittsburgh. We're still in Pittsburgh. Yes. And they bring up Jefferson Hospital, too. And I was like, that's Mm -hmm. in Philadelphia. But Mm -mm. it's oh, my God. (laughs) I really was on a journey for a little bit. And I'm like, wait a second. No, this all happens in the Pittsburgh area. It's like there's Jefferson County in western pa and there's a ton of jefferson townships like within other counties and then of course in pittsburgh or in philly you have all of the founding fathers stuff so you've got all kinds of jeffersons and washingtons and all that over there yeah can people just get more creative and then i wouldn't be so confused well but then we end up with tamaqua and susquehanna and well those are native names names. They're still unique. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I mean, they're still stolen, but... Also true. Yeah, anyway, yeah, I was confused, but um, I figured it out. In the morning, Lisa said that Michael's eyes kept rolling into the back of his head, and she got freaked out and took him to the hospital, which is exactly what she should have done. And she was sure that it was some sort of, like, drug-related thing, that maybe he had overdosed or something like that. Unfortunately, Michael refused to be treated at the hospital and he just walks out of the emergency room. It's like, bye. Uh, Apparently he did that three times, too. So I guess they would like get him back in and then he would leave again. Um, And he just tried to like walk away from everyone. Lisa eventually convinces him to get back into her car and they drive back kind of like toward his parents' house. And they stop at a gas station in West Homestead. Uh, which isn't too far from Shadyside, luckily, because he leaves Lisa and her three-year-old daughter, who was apparently with them. Oh. I don't know at what point. I'm guessing the daughter was at Lisa's mom's house. I'm not sure <sighs> at what point she joined them. 
but he leaves them at the gas station and just takes her car and drives away. Wow. So it's a little hard to feel bad for him at this point because. Yeah. Damn. She said that he pulled into the gas station, threw the car into reverse, hit a telephone pole, then just told them to get out. Okay. So she was not about to argue. Yeah, no. And they just got out of the car. Especially not with a three-year-old. Like, okay, I'm taking my daughter. I'm out. Have fun. Yeah. Uh, Go wreck my car. Whatever. Give me my kid. That had to be so scary. Um, But as he drove away, he told her to meet him at his parents' house later, which like none of this is funny, but I just imagine him like kind of yelling out the window like, hey, just meet me at my parents later. later. Like what? Okay. Excuse me? Yeah, that's uh, okay. Very bizarre. Uh, Lisa says he didn't have any money on him or an ID. So and I'm not exactly sure why. But I guess maybe when he left his parents' house in a huff, he maybe he just didn't yeah. grab anything, I'm guessing. So Lisa and her daughter hitchhike, I mean, it is 1980, back to Oakland, uh, which is a neighborhood in Pittsburgh. And she checks herself into the Western Psychiatric Institute and Clinic, which, like I said, is where she met Michael. So it all comes back full circle. I, I like that she just like marched right back basically and like checked herself in. But I'm also concerned about like what happened to her daughter. That's what I was just going to ask. Yeah, because I have no idea. Where'd the kid go? Yeah. Hopefully being taken care of. But I mean, her mom did live close. Obviously, they That's stayed with true. her. So I'm hoping maybe Do she called know her. who the father of the child is? Like maybe the father was able to. No. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I just have jotted down that Michael was definitely not the father because they hadn't been together that long. So, um, but it's not mentioned. So he could have been in the picture, honestly. Um, but yeah, hopefully I like to think that the daughter was taken care of and that Lisa was just being responsible. Yeah. So later that day, which was Valentine's day, Lisa's sunbird was found on river road in Baldwin borough abandoned and Baldwin Borough nice. isn't really far from Shady Side. It had two shredded tires. Some places say that they're flat, but this is just shredded, which I imagine Jeez. means that they he drove over something. Right, like a one way that has the spikes yeah, or something, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um it was also dented on the driver's side. And they say it's unclear whether Michael had driven the car there or if someone else had. Uh, Initially, it gets to be more later, but a $500 reward is offered for information that might help find Michael. An exhaustive search is performed by police and volunteer firemen of the land between where the car was found and the Monongahela River. But no trace of Michael was found. And it reminds me of um, what was her name? That the car was left in the middle of the highway and then they never found anything. Was that Denise Wells? Karen Denise Wells? Um, Hers was in a parking lot. Are you thinking the one that was left on the highway during like the snowstorm? No, the one that got like really lost because she was traveling from like Oklahoma to New Jersey. Oh, Yes. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Wow, I'm kind of impressed with myself that I remembered that. Like, I realized it was my story, but my memory sucks. A few months later, it's reported that Maurice Rosenblum attempted to sue Jefferson Hospital, which is the hospital that Michael was taken to on the morning before he disappeared. The one that's in Pittsburgh, not Philly. Yes, that one. (laughs) 
uh, for his son's records relating to his treatment on that day. Maurice said that he found out on June 5th, so this is months later, that Michael had been treated at about 11 a.m. that day. So apparently Michael's parents got a call saying that Michael had been admitted to the hospital about two hours before the car was found abandoned and that he owed $51. And his family had no idea that he even went there. So I guess there was no communication between them and Lisa. Uh, I mean, I know she checked herself into a facility right when she hitchhiked home right but yeah i guess they had no idea um it also seems like he went to the er was admitted and they told him what was wrong with him and then against doctor's advice he left which i mean does match up with lisa's story i think he was probably like actually admitted and then against the doctor's advice he just kept leaving basically right also just like what a racket that he was charged 51 dollars today that'd be 178 dollars um for just being like admitted to the hospital but not actually treated ridiculous so but like i could complain about hospitals and health insurance forever so let's make a separate podcast for that yeah (laughs) or not (laughs) or not we'll just rant about things you and ben can start (laughs) yes Uh, The hospital refused to turn over the records without a court order. So a judge ordered them to hand them over, at least most of the records. Wasn't he suing them for the records? Yeah. Okay. So I get he he asked them at first for the records and then he he had to sue them. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I'm a little slow. No, it's fine. I said it kind of weird. So they turned over most of the records. I don't know what else they would have held back, but. I it didn't really help um like there wasn't anything in the records that pointed to where he may have gone gotcha so another thing that wasn't helpful was that Lisa left Pittsburgh she said that the whole thing surrounding Michael's disappearance was a hassle so she moved to Florida now that's an interesting word choice yeah um and we'll get more of that too um but and that sounds pretty callous and like maybe even a little suspicious but it doesn't seem like they were together very long it was more of a fling also he left her at a freaking gas station with her three-year-old yeah Yeah. (laughs) so like honestly i might have peaced out too she just they weren't very involved it was just it was kind of like they were seeing each other. Yeah. So she's quoted in an article in the Pittsburgh press as saying, I'd like to get my hands on him for getting me into this mess. This whole thing has been a real drag. So speaking of like <laughs> saying things yeah. in a certain way. I mean, I'm not saying at all that she's responsible for this. You know, I'm definitely don't think that is the case, but that quote does not make her look very good. It's been a real drag, man. I mean, it was the 80s. So, so far, we have no trace of Michael anywhere near Lisa's abandoned car, which he was driving earlier that day. Lisa has left the state. The medical records from February 14th are not helpful. And the police also said early on that the investigation was hindered by the fact that Michael's parents were trying to avoid a ton of publicity. Now, I don't think his parents had anything to do with his disappearance. And looks can absolutely be deceiving. But from their appearances on Unsolved Mysteries, like they truly appear to have loved Michael 
so much. Uh, They tried again and again and again to help him get off drugs. His mother definitely, she says this explicitly, that she did blame herself for kicking him out of the house. And his father never stopped pushing forward with his own investigation until his own death. So, yeah, I mean, if that ever happened to anybody in my life, it would be I I would track it down until I got an answer or died. Yeah. So really sad Absolutely. that he died without an answer. But I mean, they really, really tried. I think that they didn't really know how to handle it all. And they said that they just didn't see how a bunch of publicity was going to help them find Michael, which seems like counterintuitive, but they're, you know, a little bit older and they just, they were scared and overwhelmed. And maybe they even felt kind of embarrassed because they had kicked him out. I mean, who knows? That's, that's kind of how I was leaning more. Um, And also like now, obviously my husband doesn't have a past with drugs, And, you know, he's not an addict of any sort that I would ever imagine him, you know, running off to chase an addiction. But if something happened and he was now missing, I would not want cameras in my face 24-7. I don't want my house on Facebook Live constantly. Like, I mean, I can totally get not wanting you to be in the publicity. I mean, sure. People could still put posters and run articles and everything without invading the family's personal space. So I think kind of putting it on them as, well, they didn't really want it in the news, so it cost a lot of leads. Well, police also very much could have kept it in the news. Mm-hmm. Sure. Like I don't, that, you can't place that responsibility solely on the family who are grieving civilians who have nothing to add. Yeah, they're not trained for this. Yeah, I just, sorry, that's a little bit of a soapbox of mine, but I think a lot of times from the media, we see a certain viewpoint of people. Yeah. And it's like, put yourselves in their shoes. And obviously I don't have kids, but if something happened to my husband, I wouldn't want cameras in my face all the freaking time. Right. I'd like I'd so want his face like it. everywhere, but maybe not my face, you know, just stuff like right. that. Like yeah. you're not trying to find me. You're trying to yeah. find him. I'm right here. <laughs> right. I, I know where I am. I am good. Location secured. Go find my husband. Thanks. Yep. Sorry. No, I totally get it. Um, But so at this point, there's really nothing to go off of. And there continues to be a complete lack of evidence. At this point, Michael's parents, and at least his father is quoted as saying that he felt that Michael was no longer alive. And this is, you know, months after he's been missing. He was hoping against hope that he was, but he just didn't see how it could be possible. You know, as a father, he was very much hoping, but as thinking critically, he just didn't think that it was possible. They just desperately wanted to know what happened. Yes. I think it would almost be harder emotionally to keep yourself thinking he's out there, he's out there, he's going to come home. And then each day when he doesn't come home, that's got to be a deeper and deeper heartbreak. Mm -hmm. Whereas looking at it and trying to convince yourself like, no, he is dead. We just haven't found him. Like he's not coming home alive. Kind of it sets you up for a better place. If you expect that he's dead and he winds up being alive, that's a fantastic surprise. Yeah. If you expect that he's alive and you find him dead, you're absolutely devastated. Yeah. It's like a survival technique almost. Like yes. your brain has to 
tell you yes. that. So then in 1988, on the suggestion of a psychic, investigators searched along a steep bluff overlooking the Monongahela River in Baldwin Borough. A bone fragment and some scraps of clothing were found near River Road. The bone fragment was found to be that of an animal, but the scraps of clothing matched the description of those Michael was wearing when he went missing. So I don't know the area very well, but it seems like this is the same area that was searched when the car was found eight years earlier. Now it's between River Road and the river. So maybe it's a really long stretch and the entire thing wasn't searched, but it's in Baldwin Borough, which is where the car was found. So I'm just confused as to how eight years later, well, we're finding things. And I think too of like, you know, even spending like a weekend up at the lake house, if I take one of my personal towels and leave it laying on the dock all weekend for three days near water and sunlight, the coloring changes. Mm -hmm. So we're saying over an eight year time span, he, if he's alive, still has the same exact shirt. And if he's not alive and died eight years prior, his shirt coloring would have been totally lost by that point. Yeah. Like it would have been so sun bleached or just destroyed and eroded over that time. Right. Am I missing something in there? No, I mean, I'm imagining that it was a wooded area. That's just how I imagine it. Actually, I'm not sure. So like it may not have had that much sun hit it, but still it's been eight years years? and I'm sure some sun has hit it. I'm sure animals have probably gotten to it. So even just if it's in a more wooded area. And it's on the ground. You're going to have leaves under it, leaves on top of it. They're going to break down. It's going to start to break that material down. Yeah. Like, you know, cloth doesn't break down the same way that a leaf does, but truly it is just cotton. So eventually it does just break down. How do you know he wasn't wearing synthetic fabrics? That's true. He could have been. Everything it else was the in 70s. the 70s and 80s was synthetic. So. I mean, technically 80, but yeah, it was essentially still the 70s. So. Whatever. Whatever. It's all synthetic anyway. So another four years passed. And then in 1992, a hiker in the same area found a piece of human skull. This is why I don't like hiking. <laughs> is that I'm why? I'm terrified. Well, I mean, among the fact that I'm lazy and have asthma but like i would be terrified if i found a chunk of human skull yeah no thanks um but they find this piece of skull and the piece was confirmed to belong to michael rosenblum so 12 years after disappearing his parents finally had at least a small part of him to bury Jeez, i wonder if they felt like um Oh, who was the case we just covered a couple weeks ago where they only found her skull and the family said they felt like they Jenny were. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the family said, you know, like, we feel like we're worse now that we have part of her and not all of her. Yeah. His dad did say something about, you know, he wants closure, but it makes you feel kind of sick that you could have this proof that your son is dead. Right. So, yes. Um. And But that's the only part that they have found of him. Wow. So now when I started researching this story, the first full page of Google results, because where else do you start, Um, 
was just other podcasts that have covered the story or YouTube channels or amateur sleuths writing papers or creating websites. Like I had no idea how well known this case was. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard this name. No, uh, uh-uh. um, I've never heard anything about it. So I really tried to stay away from other content creators and Reddit and web sleuths just because there is so much out there and I wanted to report this story as accurately as possible. I personally don't hate on Reddit and web sleuth theories as much as I used to because we are researching unsolved cases here and sometimes like other people who have really looked into it have some really solid theories so i'm not saying that these other sources aren't accurate but in order to not like overwhelm myself with information i really tried to stick to like newspaper articles and official documents and of course i watched the unsolved mysteries episode it's season one episode 13 if you're interested (laughs) um But yeah, I really tried to stick to very official sources, but I was very surprised that so many other podcasts have covered this just because I I guess I'm just the ignorant one podcasts that have done it. Um, none that I had heard of. There was one that seems to be pretty big. It's the trail went cold. Maybe I have heard of it. I think I've heard that name. Yeah. So not like the the huge, huge ones, but right. quite just quite a few and a lot of like YouTubers. So that being said, I'm only going to really deep dive into one theory. And it's at least a theory that Michael's parents have believed absolutely like or believed absolutely pretty much the entire time. And probably mm-hmm. one of the main reasons that this case is so popular with other content creators um, so we will talk about that on next week's episode, which will be of course. part two of Michael's story. And I don't have the second part written out. So Sarah can yeah, only so. see that like first sentence that I wrote. So <laughs> she she'll have to wait too. Yeah. Listeners, I'm I'm waiting right along with you, unfortunately. <laughs> Although I do know what the theory is that we're gonna talk about. Yes. But I won't say. But you it. don't know the details. Wait until you hear. Story of my life. I don't know the details quite often. But I haven't really been able to find anywhere else that says where you can call if you have information. So I'm just going to again give the PA Crime Stoppers 1 800 4 PA tips. Um, I mean, you can always call like this, the local state police and stuff like that. But I none of the articles I've seen have really directed anyone to give information. So anyway, talk about that next week. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Grace. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music by Darren Makins. Production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.